Stop it! Don't open that door! Trick or treat is what you, the listener, says just before having your sack stuffed full of masters of unlocking goodness. Ah, but you attentive treat beggars will notice I didn't specify whether or not this podcast is a trick or a treat. The assumption is a treat, sure, of course. Traditionally, treats are delivered on Halloween, but maybe this is a trick. And you're really just listening to... Polykill. You're not listening to Polykill. You're listening to Masters of Unlocking, our Halloween episode, and uh, there's there's lots of scary stuff going on here in the in the studios of Caleb and Scott. I'm Caleb, and with me is Scott. And the spooky things involve um, perhaps a crackling voice or two, which is uh, really just chalked up to my internet connection getting murdered. Um, and which is scary, I guess, in and of itself. And also uh, Scott. Just uh, being a, a person who has to endure my crackling internet, which I'm sure will drive him to insanity and possibly have him uh, murder me with an axe. So we'll see. Either way, it's going to be kind of scary. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, after I after I come hunt you down with the axe, I may go on a rampage, stop by the mighty Q-Dog house, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> see where things go from there. Oh, Eric has it coming, right? He does. I, I think we can say it. Let's all just he say does. it. Eric has it coming. Everybody knows uh. it. Every we all talk about it, you know. Yeah. Our group chat that's literally called "Don't Show This to Eric Ever." Dot com uh, has yeah. Dot com. <laughs> oh crap! Now he knows about it. Well, uh, that's okay. He doesn't listen. I'm not very good at keeping secrets. <laughs> well, um, so I, I think it's been it's been a couple weeks, obviously, since we've t- since we've talked, uh, and uh, I think a lot's probably been going on. This episode, we're going to talk about some spooky stories that are happening in the game of in the the game of news <laughs> in the in the world of gaming news i guess is probably a better way of saying that so we're going to be talking about um bethesda's anti-nazi stance which is uh, i think we can all well hopefully uh, up until recently i think we could have all agreed that nazis were bad and now I don't want to get political, but there are some people out there that apparently don't think that Nazis are bad. This is America, Caleb. We can't agree on anything. That's very true. You know, that is very American to not agree on stuff. At least it is as of late, you know. Or maybe it's always, it's probably always been that way, I think. Well, I tend to blame the launch of the Discord app. It seems to all sort of coincide with uh, the rise of Discord. Well, it is called Discord, so I guess that would make sense. What else? Oh, 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 we're going to talk about what happens to your Steam account when you die. I bet a lot of people don't think about that, or they think about it in terms that um, are incorrect, so that'll be fun. My God, I, I hope it becomes undead. <laughs> it will. We're also going to talk about possibly uh, what uh, a company that wants to replace uh, textbooks with video games. I'm all I'm all for that. Um, or maybe talk a little bit about video games and whether or not difficulty is an important thing. This has been something that's been making the rounds lately. I, I made a video about it not too long ago. Uh, the Cartridge uh, Brothers at the Cartridge Club podcast uh, did a uh, uh, did an episode about this as well, or they talked a little bit about it as well during the weekly podcast last week, I believe it was. Um, and then maybe we'll even touch on the ESRB um, and see what they're up to. They're up to some shenanigans, I hear. So... With that all being said, Scott, I want to start by asking what you've been playing lately, because you've been playing some games, I'm looking at the list here, at least one game that I 
am very, very interested in uh, because I've never played this series. I mentioned in our last episode that I was just getting ready to start Yeast 8, Lacrimosa of Donna. And so I've been playing the ever-loving crap out of that game for the last <laughs> two weeks. Uh, I will say last week I didn't get a whole lot of gaming in. I was traveling all week uh, to a friend's wedding and then uh, back home to see family. So I actually did a lot of Switch handheld gaming, which was actually the first time that I played the Switch in handheld mode at any length. And I enjoyed it. I had I had a lot of fun with it. I prefer it on the big screen, but I took Mario Kart 8 with me. Well, I took a bunch of games with, but I actually only ended up playing Mario Kart 8, uh, unlocked tracks and hanging out showing it off to friends and stuff and uh had a had a great time with it i'm a bit torn about the fact that the switch is seemingly the just being release after release of of wii u games but um the fact that the wii u didn't sell all that well there's quite a few pretty awesome games on it so i'm glad more people will get to experience them uh in the long run here but yeast 8 is where i've spent most of my time i'm about 50 hours into it now and i'm really enjoying the story this is actually only the second yeast game that i've played all the yeast games follow the adventures of the same character adol christian and throughout the game, there are obvious references to Adol's previous adventures. So playing this one has really prompted a desire to go back and play some of those previous games in the franchise. One of the things I really like about the series most is that Adol's adventures are twists on historical and literary settings. And I'm a history nerd. My undergrad is in history. And like you, Caleb, I'm an avid reader. So now I'm really in, while I'm really enjoying the game, I love the mix of action RPG gameplay, JRPG artwork, and Western civilization mythological ties. One area where the game has been pretty fairly panned is in the Western localization. Uh, interestingly, mm-hmm. just this afternoon as we record this, I read an article saying that Nihon Falcom, the developer, actually apologized for the localization, and they're working on a complete redo of it, which will be released as an upcoming patch. Yeah, text and uh, voice acting and everything, so that's that's crazy. Yeah, no doubt. Props to them on it, because some of it really is laughably bad, and not even just minor things. Some of the major place names on the island, and I won't get into spoilers here, so I, I'm not going to get any details on it, but some of it is really pretty bad. Mm. Has there ever been a situation where a game has embraced the uh, long-standing tradition of having American games be very terribly localized. I know it seemed in the 8-bit, 16-bit era, there was a lot of bad localization, and primarily that was due, I think, to space constraints. There was only so many, so many characters and so many, um, so much memory to store in a cartridge, so they had to get creative, uh, you know, and that's where um, I think uh, U.S. Uh, kids growing up in North America, anyway, got really familiar with shortened versions of words, and they just sort of pe- became the words, like uh, HP instead of hit points, you know, that was just... They were called HP. I don't think I knew that HP stood for hit points until I was like in college or something. I (laughs) I thought back and I was like, oh, yeah, that does make more sense than just HP. I just thought HP was what it was called. So I know there's other probably less egregious examples because I'm sure most people listening are thinking Caleb, you're an idiot. But I I, I promise there were other there were other situations where uh, it wasn't so obvious that it was an acronym. It was just sort of a shortened version of a word. And I wonder if a game's ever 
just to have fun sort of embraced that. I know there was a book written uh, uh, not too long ago, published not too long ago, that was just full of funny translation errors. And there's always the, um, you know, congratulation, you know, stuff that people talk about. Uh, as And I wonder if it would be fun to see a video game that just embraces that and sort of the entire dialogue is just badly localized uh, dialogue um, on purpose. That'd be kind of fun. An entire game in English. Exactly. Yeah. And it would just, and maybe that's, you know, and, and other uh, races and things like that in games often have their own language, language. And that would just be great if one of them was just terribly butchered English. You know, I don't know. I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be a fun little callback to uh, to the restrictions of yesteryear. Yeah, I, and I kind of like the you know, back before games could get patched and the those things mm-hmm. would sort of just become iconic. You know, we wouldn't have we, the Internet never would have had all your base are belong to us if, uh, you know, if games <laughs> could have been patched back in the late 80s, early 90s. Exactly. And that's actually the title of one book. I don't think that book was specifically about uh, bad translations, but I think the one about bad translations is called something like all your all your bad translations are belong to us or something dumb like that. (laughs) So um, I haven't read the book myself, but uh, I'm a huge fan of video game books and video game related books, as we will um, talk a little bit about here when I get into my playlist. But uh, so Lacrimosa of Donna is is pretty good. You say it's being your what what was the first Yeast game you played? The first Yeast game was Memories of Salsetta for the Vita, which is actually considered the canon version of Yeast 4 because the previous two releases of Yeast 4, Mask of the Sun and Dawn of Yeast, weren't actually even done by Nihon Falcom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Adol's adventures in Celsetta are subtly referenced several times throughout Lacrimosa of Donna. I, I haven't played any of the Yeast games either, but I know that you and I both got a copy of Yeast Origins from uh, uh, distributed by uh, Limited Run Games. And that's the first one I will have played. I haven't played it yet, but that will be the first one. And I have heard that that is quite a different game than the others. It's 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 fairly uh, it's not near. It's not really an open world. You're essentially uh, ascending a tower the entire game. But I've heard from fans of these games that that doesn't really detract from it too much, and that it's still a really really great experience. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, Yeast Origins actually is a prequel to the mainline Yeast series. It takes place 700 years before the main storyline in Yeast One. Uh, and because of that, it's actually the first Yeast title not to feature Adol Kristen as the main character. Um, my copies of Yeast uh, Origin from LRG actually just showed up today. I ordered all of the various versions, of course, because I'm a limited-run collectaholic or whore. Um, frankly, they went a little overboard here with a collector's edition bundle and standard releases with cover art variants for both PS4 and Vita. Yeah, the PAX, I think PAX is the cover art variant on that, right? Yep. There's actually two standard release cover variants for both PS4 and Vita each because there's a reversible cover art and half were sealed one way and half the other. But then, yes, uh, the PS4 version actually had a third PAX cover art variant as well. So um, with the front and back cover arts for both systems the third packs cover art for ps3 and then the two collector's editions there's actually seven versions of yeast origins to collect from limited run games and that's a little bit crazy well i hope you enjoy yourself opening those boxes but not opening the packaging right no i'll never open the games that's just crazy <laughs> that's like actually opening your candy and eating it on halloween ah. No, I, you don't do that. You collect your you collect your candy. That's right. <laughs> Let it sit on a shelf, all shiny and stickily. Did you do? Did you have crazy collections as a kid? Um, 
I had collections. Yeah, I did have quite a few collections as a kid. Most of my collections as a kid, though, were like action figures. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, when I was, my first collection was Star Wars figures, um, back in the early eighties and I didn't have a whole lot of those. And then I quickly moved out of that into, uh, masters of the universe and He-Man and mm-hmm. pretty much had the entire He-Man collection. Every week when I would get my allowance, I would go and buy like one He-Man figure. And that was just what I spent my money on. Um, and then it progressed from there into Transformers and then G.I. Joe's. And then I think after that, it was sports cards. Um, so yeah. I've, I've pretty much at any point in my life, I've always been collecting something. It's so humbling to hear when, when people have normal uh, collections growing up. See, I, it's weird. It's strange because I'm not a collector now. Uh, I don't collect video games, as I've talked about on this on this podcast before. Growing up as a child, I wasn't into sports, but I did collect sports cards and I uh, for for a while, I was my friends and I would collect fishing tackle, uh, and we would trade. We would literally trade fishing tackle like other normal, well-adjusted children would trade trading cards. And what made this even crazier is I didn't really fish. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was fun to have fishing tackle, and and some of my friends did fish. Not all of them though, so I wasn't the only crazy weirdo. But um, some of them did fish, and they knew what lures were better and things like that. And so they would always. It, it was the equivalent of like trading a a. Bo Jackson rookie card back during Bo Jackson's heyday for just some no name player. Uh, they would, you know, really, uh, they would really pull one over on me when they were able to, you know, give me a salt crawler for my uh, cra- crazy weird jig, and <laughs> and it was it was the strangest thing. And at the time, I guess I didn't understand it, but it was all it was about the time when most kids might be like cr- collecting rocks or something like that, you know. And and for some reason, it was it was fishing tackle. It was the strangest thing. And then I moved on to I loved anything that was a I should take pictures of my of my office actually at home, uh, my game room at home because the walls are actually covered covered in framed framed uh, sort of shadow boxes of just aggregations of things. So, for example, I have one frame that's full of just beer labels that I've taken off of beer bottles. I have another one that's completely full of cigar uh, rings. Um, I have one that's full of old uh, cigarette packages, another one that's match matchbooks, and then another one that is Kool-Aid packages. And it's just literally sheets of these weird of trash essentially that I've combined um and I've always been obsessed with that as a kid I anything that would fit inside a nine card three ring binder page I would collect so I had collections of like tea bags I had collections of like (laughs) condiments from restaurants I had collections in high school of condoms which I think I still have that collection in my basement somewhere (laughs) where it's just I filled nine card by three ring binder pages with condoms and uh i don't know why and, and for some reason i don't collect video games isn't, isn't that i need to talk to someone on a couch about that because that's weird that is a roundabout <laughs> collecting history <laughs> wow i know i and when i say it out loud like that i realize how how uh i, I can defend the the framed collection. So, so growing up, I was a visual artist and, and I was always into art and that sort of stuff. And I've, I've truly believed that, you know, art becomes art when it's framed and presented, right? When it, when you, when, when you purposefully put it on display and there's an, there's an audience to receive it, those two things are integral for art. So I loved the idea of framing anything because by the, simply the act of framing something and hanging it on a wall for others to see makes it art. And so it's sort of my, weird little high school kind of uh, emo way of saying this trash is art but at the same time I think it looks really cool to have a ton of things together in a frame (laughs) 
So while you may have collected weird things, while normal kids got together and like traded their sports cards, you know, I would give you this card for that card. My friends mm-hmm. and I, we would get together and we would gamble for them. So <laughs> we would take we would take one of the commons. One of the the popular choices was a nineteen eighty nine tops Rich Yet card, who was a pitcher for the Cleveland <laughs> Rich Yet, and we just liked his name. But you, it felt like every pack of cards you opened, you would get one of these Rich Yet cards. It was just like it would almost <laughs> like it was came with the bubble gum in every package. <laughs> so we would take these common cards and we would tape them to cardboard boxes, and we would basically. Uh, shoot bow and arrows at the box and we would all gamble like one card per round and then whichever kid would get closest to you know rich yet center of the card then (laughs) they would get like that that hall of cards and then it would rotate and go around and everybody else would ante up and then it would be another round of shooting bow and arrows at the at the baseball card that's awesome yeah we i actually just told i uh, ran into when i was back home last week i ran into one of my friend's parents whose house that we actually used to do this at and they had just remodeled their house and i asked so is there room in in the new edition for archery contests in the backyard and apparently they had never actually known that we were you know, <laughs> at this point we were probably like seven shooting you know full strength bow and arrows across their oh backyard God. and running around back there i'm sure uh today's parents would have a conniption if they're six-year-olds were doing that <laughs> i think uh, i think what you need to do is we need to combine those pastimes of video games and shooting arrows at collections and i need to visit your house sometime we need to line up all your video games and just shoot arrows at them <laughs> i think it's a, why not as, as long as I, we can also shoot arrows in all of those condoms <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't really be that safe now would they after that uh, I will. Uh, okay, before we move on to, to what I'm playing, uh, we're at the very beginning of this podcast. We haven't even started yet. So all all of that list of things I said at the beginning that we would talk about, uh, I was trying something new this time by getting the listener primed for what we would talk about. Who knows if we'll actually get to it. But before we go, um, I have to get I have to give one bow and arrow story. Uh, and I didn't realize uh, until fairly recently looking back on this, how absolutely ridiculously insane this was that my friends and I did this. So we, we only did it once, but it was for about an entire afternoon. And I know I'm setting the story up, but I promise you it delivers. So uh, I had a friend um, who lived uh, kind of in the middle of the small town I grew up in. I grew up in a small town of about 4,000 people. Um, and it's a pretty small town, but but he lived in a, in a fairly dense neighborhood of this small town right next to his house was an open was a was an open field that was probably about a quarter of a block big but other than that the whole neighborhood was was you know pretty pretty like any standard neighborhood right um so we'd use this field for playing football and things like that it was sort of the neighborhood spot to play football that kind of stuff well one day his parents were out of town and we went over uh, and he took his dad's like compound bow like one of those really sort of big not not just standard long bows but very complex compound bow uh, we took it outside and we wanted to, you know, just kind of shoot it around, have target practice or whatever we were doing with it. Um, and of us being kids, of course, we're not strong enough to pull back this compound bow. That's insane. We were probably six or now nah, I would say like nine or ten at the time. Um, so we thought the best idea that we could do because we really wanted to feel the power of this bow is we lied on our back and we put the bow on our feet and just pulled back with two hands, and then we had someone else set the arrow on top of the string, and then we would just let it fly. Now, that so so essentially what what what's happening is 
we're shooting arrows kind of, if you think of like the trajectory of maybe like a cannon kind of propped maybe 45 degrees in the air, we're shooting arrows this way. And it's, these arrows are flying probably a block and a half and they're just, they're just landing in people's front yards. They're just landing in people's backyards. We, we went and found most of the arrows, sure, but there were a few neighbors who probably woke up and saw arrows sticking out of their front yard and thought, this is who is trying to kill me. Um, we could have easily killed someone. Like, it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could have killed someone very, very easily. And it, I thought about this fairly recently and just it had this weird moment of panic where I, I realized I could have been in juvenile hall and prison my entire life because we just wanted to shoot an arrow and we you know and see how far we can make it go like it's just insane to think that that's what we did but we did yeah you know nobody ever accused us of being intelligent caleb (laughs) that's right uh speaking of not being intelligent uh my thing my playlist the stuff i'm doing when i should actually be doing uh more more smarter things Uh, i'm playing golf story on the switch which i know you're not a digital gamer um and if it's digital you kind of ignore it which in this particular case that's a shame because this game is super 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 duper fun it's super fun super charming um you're you're it's the the golf element originally pulled me away i don't really care about sports games even games even even sports that are only tangentially sports like golf um i don't really care about them but this game is this perfect rpg mix of of golf and and imagine the the fun part of any golf game is is measuring your swing you know timing your swing right and 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 pushing that ball into a tiny hole right there's just something very satisfying about about moving um, an element to a target and sort of, I don't know, there's something fun about that. Maybe that's why golf is fun for some people in real life. But imagine that mechanic, that mechanic of, of hitting, uh, of shooting a ball, hitting a ball um, to a target, but spread across many, many maps and many, many crazy, quirky worlds. You know, there's there's about eight or nine worlds, I think. There's And each world is essentially a golf course with a town kind of in it. So the, the entire golf course is built around the entire town, and it's all this this uh, homogenous, cohesive town that adopts your standard RPG tropes of what disparate towns should look like, right? We have the horror town, we have the prehistoric town, and the ice town, and the air, and the, you know, the wind town, or whatever, the, the mountain town, I guess we could call it. And each one of them, the, the golf courses are built around this town and, and the golf courses individually have mechanics that align with the themes of these towns. So for example, the prehistoric town has, you know, everyone in there is of course cavemen with bones in their nose, that sort of stuff. Um, but then instead of sand pits, they have tar pits and the tar pits, you know, will make your ball stick just like a sand pit or anything else will. Um, and this whole, and it's just so such a really cool concept that, you know, you play it and you realize like, this is going to be a classic game there. There's no way it won't be. This will be a game that's fondly remembered by anyone who plays it. And I would, I'd be surprised if at some point it didn't get some sort of physical release. If, if, if Nintendo ever loosens, it's, um, opens the ability for, uh, companies to, uh, print games in the same way that, you know, PlayStation does for limited run games, that sort of stuff. This would be one of those games that has to be, get a physical release. It's just, it's that, that good. So I absolutely love it. And anyone listening, I highly recommend it if you have a switch. Nice. It sounds really cool. Um, I, it's very cool. Um, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I finished the game Virginia, which had all the hallmarks of games I love. Walking Simulator, check. Love those. Uh, story-driven game, check. I love that. Uh, sort of a mysterious a visual a visual pleasure. Uh, check that. But it sucks. So 
I, I, not one that I recommend. It, it just wasn't good. I'm sorry. It got a lot of it got a lot of uh, uh, nods when it first came out. Um, I think because people were enamored by just this visual, di- this different kind of visual game, and they were enamored by the idea that it's inspired by Twin Peaks. But it's only inspired by Twin Peaks in the sense that it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, and it's very disconnected. Uh, but it doesn't have the charm of a Twin Peaks or the lasting effect of a Twin Peaks. So. Oh, well. What would you say drove it over the edge of going from all of those things that you like and combining that to just falling flat? Um, I think it's because it it's it uses jump cuts excessively. And it uses jump cuts in a way that makes you make you feel like they did it out of necessity because they didn't know how to do it better. So it's 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 they're the harshest jump cuts you've ever seen in a movie or in a game or anything. You'll you'll be walking. And you'll be walking towards something that game design would tell you is something that you should reach. You know, you're walking toward a, a, a glowing window, right? And that, and so all of the traditional uh, mechanics, all of the game conventions, affordance would tell you that that's a place you you should go to. So you start walking to it, and immediately the screen cuts out, and now you're in a passenger seat of a car driving, and it, it's 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 annoying, I guess is the best way to say it, and. On top of that, the game tries to, I think, be clever and sort of go back in time and play with time a little bit, but it really just comes across like it's reusing assets. Um, it's mm. trying to make previous experiences seem more important than they really are, and it, it just got it got aggravating. And the game's only a couple hours long, so for a, for a game that's only a couple hours long to be aggravating in a way that I had to force myself through it when it otherwise is a game that I should love just tells me that this I'd be interested if anyone who's listening has played the game as well and had the same kind of takeaway from me because I've read so many great reviews about it maybe I just didn't get it I don't know sounds like lazy game design to me it does it seems like they were really I think banking on visuals is I think really what it was because there's there's no unique mechanics either it's it's a it's definitely a walking simulator um it's it's you know there's not a whole lot of choice you're basically just following a narrative and the narrative is very loose and hard to follow and it, it's it's not quite as linear and and walking simulator e as something like dear esther but dear esther i think got away with it because it was so such a new concept and a new idea and dear esther is visually appealing too but even dear esther for as much as i didn't really like that game so much um i liked it still quite a bit more than virginia so Oh, well. Um, and then the last thing before we go on to pickups is I am, uh, this is a little bit different for this podcast, but I'm a, I'm a reader. I, anyone who watches my videos can see in the background, I have a bookshelf full of glorious, delicious books. And anytime there's a new video game book that comes out, I always, I, I grab it up. Um, more so if it's an actual like a uh, 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 narrative or, or nonfiction type book. Um, I'm not too much into compendiums and, and just catalogs of reviews and things like that. Although I have a few of those, I'm just not a huge into it. But um, a new one recently got released um, called Crash Override by Zoe Quinn. Uh, listeners may be familiar with that name. She was the uh, person, the personality so, at, kind of at the heart of um, the Gamergate scandal, the Gamergate stuff that was going on. And while at the time that Gamergate was going on, I did not pay attention, uh, not because I was disinterested or whatever. I just, I, it just, I, maybe I, maybe I was disinterested and, and I'm, and I'm avoiding saying that because it feels bad to say I was disinterested because as I'm reading and learning, it, it's definitely a bigger deal than what I thought it was at the time. Um, so this is a book by the person who was kind of at the heart of it. Um, understandably, if it's coming from her perspective, it's going to be very much her side of the story. But based on what I've read outside of this book, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to uh, 
uh, it's kind of hard to 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 put stock in a story other than her own. You know, um, it, it seems like a very obvious case of someone uh, being uh, being harassed uh, to horrible degrees for no. Uh, if, if there's no excuse for what has happened to her. So um, it's really interesting so far, uh, tangentially related to video games, because she speaks quite a bit about more than just the video game world, but she was a, a game designer, an indie game designer, um, and uh, still is. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I'm reading. So it's really good so far. I, I recommend it um, to anyone out there who's interested. Nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So what have you picked up? Uh, other than... Uh, this book that I just had to read the name of uh, when I was talking about it. Um, the I, I picked up. Okay, so I think both of us had a had a limited run games mail call, right? We had a lot of stuff come in. Um, I had Lawbreakers come in recently. Uh, Ease Origins, as we talked about, Wonder Boy, The Dragon's Trap, and As Divine Hearts. Um, they are uh, Lawbreakers. I have no interest in ever playing, uh, honestly, and I have heard that it's all but dead in a lot of in a lot of instances or a lot of uh, ways to think about it. But I am very interested in the other three uh, games that I have going there. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, and that, and those are physical games. Obviously, there's been some digital pickups, but those aren't nearly as uh, fun to talk about. So I'll leave it there. What about you? Uh, so I picked up. I did get an uh, SNES classic. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was, and it was sort of surprising. Um, now I had mentioned before that I had pre-ordered one f- of of the European ones, but that I would have liked to get gotten a a, a North American one because obviously that's where I have the nostalgia and that North American Super Nintendo look. And I was out in Denver when it when the system was released uh, last Friday for a friend's wedding. And I was looking around. I happened to be off that Friday morning. Um, so I stopped in at a few game stores just as I was driving around. Didn't didn't see any. Didn't didn't get in line, you know, for at Best Buy or Target or anything. So I wasn't really expecting to get one. Didn't find one. And then later that day, uh, a buddy on Twitter pinged me and said, hey, you know, did did you get one? And he actually happens to live in Denver. Um, and I said, no, I didn't get one. You know, I, I'll just look later. And he said, Hey, I, I got an extra one. Um, you know, would, are you interested in it? And he gave it to me for cost. Uh, really cool, cool of him to do that. Um, so mad props, Matt Elston, he's at boss Ho- bass hoggy on Twitter. Uh, give him a follow. He does a lot of pictures about uh, his game room and he's actually a, he does a lot of clay work too, a lot of pottery stuff. So some, some cool, he does that on a different, uh, Twitter handle though, but you can find that, uh, uh, at his Twitter, Bass Hoggy. Uh, so thanks again, Matt. Much appreciated. Yeah, nice. not. Uh, it's always cool when collectors look out for collectors. You know, it's uh, it's it's cool to, yeah. to meet people in the community. And we had never actually met. We just know each other through Twitter and being gamers on Twitter, which is shocking because. Before I really got into social media, I actually lived in Denver, and we apparently lived like 10 minutes away from each other. So yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> that's a small world. And considering I'm not a collector, I would have I would have sold that thing to you for like three <laughs> times the amount. Yeah, so I'm you're an just ass. a dirty, money-grubbing <laughs> capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> Scary indeed. Woo! <laughs> oh, yeah, Halloween. Right, I forgot. Right. It all comes back to Halloween. Uh, and actually, this is is sort of a thematic pickup list because I did get quite a few spooky or horror themed games uh, of the last couple of weeks. I picked up White Day, a labyrinth named School, which just came out for PlayStation 4. Uh, it's a survival horror game where you're locked inside a school at night, uh, something that any uh, you know school age child would 
deem the most horrific thing possible. And you are <laughs> hunted by a killer janitor and haunted by the souls of the dead. Uh, with a you know with a subtitle like that, I, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Next up, I got Middle Earth: Shadow of War. I just uh, received that in the mail yesterday, and I got the Mithril edition, which was the GameStop exclusive collector's edition because I'm a huge J.R.R. Tolkien fan, Lord of the Rings, uh, The Hobbit, one of the book series that I go back and read uh, every couple of years. I just think Tolkien is a fantastic literary genius. I love his writing style. I just find it almost lyric uh, in its in his writing. So I couldn't pass that up despite the fact that it costs roughly an arm and three legs. <laughs> I def- I, and, and it's huge. I tell myself every day that I'm going to stop buying collectors and limited editions because I just don't have the space for them anymore. I need to prioritize my collecting space. And I, when I purchased this, I was hoping it would be somewhat reasonable size. It's probably the largest collector's edition i've received outside of the original titanfall it's this thing is massive (laughs) comes with the the gold edition which is you know the it comes with all of the dlc codes or whatever a 12 inch balrog versus the karnan drake statue uh some lithographs a steel book a soundtrack a cloth map of mordor just a whole bunch of tolkien geeky goodness uh so i couldn't pass that up and then this, the next pickup is actually kind of a, a cool item. This is a, it's not really a homebrew, but it's, it's a homemade game, a homemade release, I should say, that I ordered from South America. It's Surgical Strike for the 32X CD. And Surgical Strike for the 32X CD Surgical Strike was released here in North America on the seg- on the standard Sega CD. And on the cover, there was a mail-away offer for... You could mail in the warranty card from the instruction manual, and I think probably like five bucks shipping and handling or whatever, and they would send you the 32X CD version of Surgical Strike. It was planned to come out, and um, they had this big promo for it. Well... Not enough people sent in because A, it was the Sega CD and not enough people had that to begin with. B, you had to have a 32X on top of it and not enough people had that. And then it was a full motion video game that didn't sell well to boot. So it was sort of the Venn diagram of crap. (laughs) Well, so they canceled it. But apparently in Brazil, a couple of copies of this thing did actually get released. And nation or globally it's sort of one of the holy grails of uh sega cd slash 32x collecting and for a long time nobody knew whether the thing was actually even released um it was just something that there was a picture online somewhere and nobody really knew much about it for a long time in the collecting community and i think two copies have been verified and the folks at Video Game Database actually got a hold of one of the copies and essentially re-released the game. And they released it in a really slick professional box. Um, It comes with a poster, uh, a professionally pressed disc. Just a really cool kind of collector's item and a nod to one of the... Um, one of the oddities of the 32X and Sega CD collecting community. And I'm, I 
the 32X and the Sega CD are two two of my complete sets, so I wanted this to just sort of tie them together as a, a neat little novelty item. I don't buy a lot of like home-produced type games, but I thought that was cool. wanted to support the project. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and then I picked up on eBay a copy of Ultima, The False Prophet, on Super Nintendo. Uh, it was a game that I had, one of the few games that I had that was just a game only and had been looking to try and uh, complete it because it annoys me whenever I have incomplete things in my collection. And got a good deal on, on a complete copy on, on eBay. It was the first Ultima game to appear on the Super Nintendo, and it's, it's a port of Ultima 6 for the PC. And then, just as you mentioned earlier, a lot of limited run game stuff. Uh, going along with our Halloween theme, my Night Trap bundle arrived. Um, so I got the, I think they called it the, the Limited Run Friday collection or something, where it came with both copies of the game, both covers of the PS4 game, the collector's edition, the PC big box version, the record, and then a really cool Blu-ray of the amazing documentary that the guys from My Life in Gaming did about uh, Night Trap and its history and all of the controversy and political intrigue surrounding it that led to the birth of the ESRB. And yet again, we talk about Night Trap and the ESRB all in one podcast. <laughs> wow, we're the lamest we podcast are. ever. We, you know. Those, that channel, the, uh, the guys who do that, uh, My Life in Gaming, their entire channel is really good for anyone who hasn't heard of them. Um, definitely check them out. Good stuff. I think they actually did a didn't they do well i think it was them that did the video on limited run games kind of earlier in the limited run games life uh it did an entire you know 30 minute kind of video about them and everything and just very good quality yeah their production quality is amazing they've got Mm -hmm. you know information on on how to get the best video quality out of your out of your game systems how to get everything all hooked up with rgb how to um you know, upscale stuff whether it's a frame meister or an open source scan converter they kind of go through all of the switching options uh, just a really good uh, video collection of of gaming data another uh, where i sort of got all of my information for that, that similar stuff before my life in gaming came out with all of the the video series was a website called retrorgb.com. Uh, also highly recommended if you're interested in getting into some of the technical nitty-gritty on uh, getting the best quality out of your game systems your old retro game systems and getting them up converted for modern tvs speaking of back when things were of better quality in the past nazis oh right? man did I, did I is that not oh god oh god that came out <laughs> wrong uh <laughs> i feel bad even joking about it because it used to be one of those things where you could just talk about like oh nazis hilarious and now you now they're still around um so uh back kind of into our current events here which uh you know we'll I have a feeling we'll kind of burn through these a little bit quickly. What we want to do, uh, definitely touch on some horror games uh, that have spoken to us uh, as children or, or perhaps as as, as petrified uh, little little adults. Um, so we'll definitely want to get to that. But there's some really cool stories that have come out fairly recently that we want to get through. And this first one um, is, regarded, is about Bethesda. And uh, Bethesda, um, the title of the article is Bethesda Embraces Anti-Knot Stance. That's what Wolfenstein represents. Uh, And apparently uh, there was just some hubbub about, um, you know, it's sort of a coincidence that uh, it's very much a coincidence that uh, the new Wolfenstein game is coming out, a series that is 
built upon killing Nazis has come about during this uh, sort of neo-Nazi resurgence in the Americas. Um, Resurgence is a bit grandiose. I want everyone who's listening to this podcast who's not from America to realize they're still a a minority. Unfortunately, it's it's a vocal and annoying minority. Um, And so uh, it's sort of this coincidence, right, that this is happening. And um, some people are are claiming that Bethesda somehow is use is uh, is is leveraging this uh, this atmosphere for their own marketing gains. Apparently, not realizing that video games take years and years and years to develop. Uh, so that's obviously not the case. But what I love the most about this entire story, this entire thing, is that Bethesda, uh, being correct in the matter, is is they're not they're not trying to apologize for it. They literally say in this in this article. Um, that uh, I don't have that quote up right now, but they literally say something like, um, you know, when it comes to being when it comes to Nazis, you can put us in the we're not a fan column. <laughs> so they're just they're sort of making people realize that, like, y- you're you're crazy, right, for thinking that that, you know, we're doing bad by saying that Nazis are bad. Like, how is that really a story? So I just thought it was really nice. I love it when a company is willing to. I don't want to say be apolitical or or sort of, um, you know, push the boundaries. In a way, this is what they're kind of doing by not backing down to pressure. So it's pushing boundaries in that sense. And I love when a company does that, uh, especially when it aligns with my beliefs. So maybe I'm just being maybe I'm being selfish there, but I think it's fantastic. The, the, the yeah, they've been pretty this. vocal about this on, on social media. Their director, their vice president of, of my marketing and PR uh, Pete Hines is who you were quoting earlier, and he said, "When it comes to Nazis, you can put us down in the against column." <laughs> yeah. I also he also said, uh, I think he told Game Industry, he goes, "We don't feel it's a reach for us to say Nazis are bad and un-American, and we're not worried about being on the right side of history here." <laughs> <laughs> and it's so I mean we we're laughing we're laughing but the fact that it's a it's a story to begin with is is crazy but you know I don't think we're going to solve this problem here on this podcast but I thought it was uh in fact I can say with confidence that we're not going to solve the problem here on the podcast if we did yay for but us but you know when when that. this game actually comes out we will definitely solve some Nazi problems as BJ slaughtering oh some some uh, evil German butt. I can't wait, man. October 27th is going to be a terrible day for my health. You know, this and Mario Odyssey coming out at the same day. Plus, uh, uh, the fractured butthole comes out in just like five days, I think. So, And the 27th is also the day pre-orders for the iPhone ten come out. So that day is going to hurt my wallet significantly. Oh, man. I, day, I guess it's times like that when I'm glad that uh, I'm not a an, an Apple uh, fanatic. Um, don't, I don't hate Apple by any means, but just ne- never really grabbed onto the, the, the stuff. But uh, I love that people are passionate about Apple. I'm actually not an Apple fan either, but I do like the iPhones. They're actually the only Apple products I use. I feel the only thing an Apple computer is good for is like propping up crooked stools. <laughs> but for some reason, I just like the simplicity of the iPhone. I, mm-hmm. I prefer it to android i just like that it's more locked down i don't have to think about it yeah i that that's fair that's fair and i actually read uh just today a story um this is not video game related at all but it's a freaking phenomenal so i'm gonna evangelize for it as much as i can uh google just released headphones that are translating headphones so they actually will translate uh incoming audio um 
a lot. That's like, amazing. Time, which is crazy pants. Yeah. Um, I don't know when they were being released, but the st- there's stories out there, so it's definitely a real thing. It feels like one of those things that should be a hoax. Right. Like, there's no way that technology exists. But yeah, it's totally oh, real. It's, it, it looks amazing. The minute yeah. they come out, I'm, I'm buying one and flying to Japan. Oh yeah, do it. It's also a, uh, a when you when you have them plugged into your phone, um, and I don't know if this will be an independent app that Apple would have access to or not. But I know the Google Translate app. I think it's the Google Translate app that will actually um, speak uh, your uh, words as well. So whoever is talking to you can actually then hear, you know, interpret. If, if they don't have headphones, for example, then they can kind of hear what your speech is going to be. So I, I think that's freaking. I'm still too much of a weenie to actually engage anybody let alone somebody who doesn't speak my my language natively in public um i just avoid people so that'll it'll never it'll never serve my purposes but i still think it's freaking amazing <laughs> anyway just we just wanted to give give everyone that so let's talk about let's let's talk a little bit more about death uh on this spooky halloween episode yes. tombstone it up about what happens to your steam account when you die and I think a lot of people probably assume that your Steam account, along with any other sort of online account, would be giftable in a will or would allow would be able to be passed along uh, to other people when you die. And apparently that is not the case at all. Uh, I was very surprised to learn this. Uh, had Were you you're more involved in the legal world? And by more involved, I mean. I'm not involved in the legal world at all. Um, <laughs> are you? Uh, d- is this anything that you even had any concept about? The fact that that uh, uh, that digital uh, at the heart of this thing, it's basically you're, you're not able to transfer your rights of your digital games to someone else. They belong to you and you only, and it really doesn't even matter if you write it into a will. They belong to you, and once you die, your assets, your online assets associated with Steam accounts, that being games software, that sort of stuff, dies kind of with you and you can't pass it along. Is this a common thing in the world of law, do you know? Yeah, non-transferability of digital assets is actually fairly commonplace. Um, when it comes to licensure, they, for our purposes anyway, they broadly fall into two categories. The first being transferable, meaning that you as the person receiving the license to use the game or the licensee have the right to reassign your license to whomever you choose. And then the other category, obviously, is non-transferable, where you're really only licensing the right to access the content for yourself without any ability to assign or transfer that right to another. The vast majority of digitally distributed games, whether it's Nintendo, whether it's Steam, PlayStation Network, Xbox Live, the vast majority of them fall into the latter non-transferable bucket. And... Frankly, this gets to the core of why I'm such an ardent non-supporter of digital content in the first place. You simply don't have one iota of ownership rights over what you've quote-unquote purchased. In fact, to even use the words buy and purchase are really is a misnomer. It's really a misnomer when talking about the vast majority of digital content. Leasing, licensing, or even renting would really be a much more accurate turn of phrase. Um, At the fundamental core of property law here in the U.S. and elsewhere is that ownership equals the ability to transfer that ownership to someone else. Ownership essentially equals transferability. If you don't have the right to transfer something, then you simply don't own it. 
So ultimately, in most digital game transactions, you're paying for a non-transferable and revocable license. Hmm. And that last part is important, too, the, the revocability. That means that the publisher, the actual owner of the content, is letting you use the game until either A, you die, or B, they just decide to not let you use it anymore entirely at their own discretion. Whichever one of those comes first. The revocability part is actually kind of timely because Nintendo just announced that they're shutting down the WiiWare store at the end of 2018. And while I think you can purchase games on it until the end of March 2018, it's going to go away completely at the end of 2018. And there's a lot of exclusive content on the WiiWare uh, on the WiiWare store that's not available on any other platforms. So really, once Nintendo shuts down the WiiWare store and completely disconnects you from the ability to re-access items that you've already quote-unquote purchased, your accessibility to those items are really tied to the stability you think, of your hardware. Is, does, does this situation uh, add some light to why game companies may push digital even harder? You know, they, we hear stories about um, game companies pushing digital because it's cheaper, um, because, you know, they don't have to worry about stock and all that kind of stuff. But also, if they can... If they literally don't have to worry about uh, inheritance and they can legitimately sell games to new generations as generations pass and not have to not have to worry about that, then doesn't then is that an argument for them to is would that be a reason why maybe that they would be more they would want to uh, invest in digital rather than physical? Well, I think that's part of it. But really the whole you can't bequeath your digital library thing is just a corner case of the larger prohibition on any form of rights transfer. Uh, And frankly, I think that's probably an unintended consequence Mm -hmm. because it's really a tiny slice of the pie that publishers are really trying to protect. Now, I don't buy for a second that the primary reason for publishers pushing digital distribution has anything to do with physical media production costs or supply chain simplicity. Now, no doubt those are both big benefits of digital distribution for publishers, but the far bigger benefit uh, to them is abolishing the secondary market. And by secondary market, I mean the used games market. So for years, publishers have wanted to kill the secondary market. You could Google, um, you know, how many, how much, how much revenue do used games generate? How much do publishers dislike used games? Things like that. You'll see, you'll find articles going back into the early 2000s and even the 90s. Uh, it's been a long time nemesis of the game creation community. They've tried and failed to abolish the secondary market on a legal basis based on intellectual property laws on several occasions and failed. Um, But they will definitely succeed with digital distribution because, by and large, there is no way to buy and sell used content for digital distribution, anything with digital rights management on it. DRM, like Steam or PlayStation Network or Xbox Live or the Nintendo uh, Virtual Store. Now, some people will wonder, well... How how much of a problem is this, the, the used game markets, from a publisher's perspective? Well, it's huge. Now, some estimates have pegged the that the used, the secondary market, represents a th- anywhere from a quarter to a third of the entire game industry from a, from a revenue perspective. So that's anywhere from 2 to $3 billion annually. And that's all revenue that publishers are missing out on completely. So to step back a little bit here, 
if you purchase a $60 game new from a retailer, any retailer, whether it's your mom and pop store, Best Buy, GameStop, whomever, the store itself is making about $5 to $6 on that sale at best. Typically, a, a retail store buys buys new first-run games for anywhere from $53 to $55 a piece from their distributor. So that really only gives them about a 10% margin. There's very little money to be made from the retailer side of things on new games. So then you take out 10% of that, and then the distributor also takes out another 10 to 15%. So that really leaves the lion's share anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of the game's price goes to the publisher to be divvied up among themselves the manufacturer the the developer etc conversely when you go and buy a used game from anyone whether it's gamestop best buy your best friend ebay the game publisher gets zero so from a game publisher's perspective and this makes complete sense i'm not knocking them for this um, they view effectively that they are missing out on anywhere from a quarter to a third of their revenue potential. And by abolishing the secondary game market, they can claw at least a portion of that back. From a game publisher perspective, they don't particularly care if the game you know the game buying universe shrinks a little bit. There are a lot of people that buy used games specifically because they can't afford new games. And I think that game publishers are really don't care much if those folks fall out of the ecosystem because they're not generating money outside out they're not generating revenue off of those folks anyway. Outside of potential in-game purchases. How enforceable is it really, though? I mean, when it comes to passing along your account when you die, so giving your entire account over to someone, that seems like they can't, couldn't really enforce that. Obviously, transferring rights as you're still alive, maybe back and forth between accounts, that can be locked down pretty easily. But if you give your password to someone when you die, like, does that ultimately catch up? So when, when some entity finds out you're dead, it will ultimately a trickle down to getting your account shut off or or is does is it even realistically enforceable i think it's tough i mean I, you you could definitely do that i think they they can do some things to get around it like uh, detecting name changes when new credit cards are issued but if you're not going to purchase anything new on that account and it's just like a legacy account i think it's it's tough to to enforce but i and i think the the non-transferability, the the not not being able to pass it on in death is just a small subset case of the overall not the overall reason for it is so that you don't sell individual titles from your account and and create that used aftermarket. I think this is just a a corner use case. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about uh, uh, another death, sadly, Um, a company that wants to murder textbooks with video games. So we'll link to the full article. Uh, We're running up on time and everything, and I want to make sure we get to all the good stuff. But I bring this up. It's a company that does exactly what what it sounds like. They want to uh, enhance the learning experience, really replace the the existing learning experience of, of reading textbooks and that sort of thing with a more interactive video game approach. Think, think this has been happening for a while with the whole edutainment industry, but my primary question here, I think, is that um, I want to know why edutainment has remained such a novelty because it feels it feels like it has. It's always been it's always oh that's just an edutainment game that's just an edutainment game. 
Um, I, I have a hard time believing that that's directly correlated to the quality of the game, that, that all edutainment games are just bad games. I just have a hard time believing that, even though maybe most of them are. I don't know. So why I why has it remained such a novelty, this this idea of, of using video games as a form of education? Is it because they've always been associated with entertainment and it's just really hard to diverge that? But then again, we have things like documentaries, for example. And documentaries would be, I think, the motion picture version of edutainment. Um, and those are very highly well-respected. So if do you have any thoughts on that, Scott? And if you don't, that's totally fine. I'm just curious. Oh, I have thoughts on most things. <laughs> None of not many of them make sense. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no, there's you've, you've made sense, I think, uh, tw- uh, three, four, maybe four times. So I think we're that good. almost once every other episode. So I'll take it. I think some of it is just labeling bias. Now, there are plenty of games that are educational, but are not commonly labeled as edutainment. Uh, just off the top of my head, Company of Heroes, Rome Total War are great ways to learn about military history. The Civilization series is a great way to learn about economics on a macro level. Football Manager is a great way to learn about sports business. Um, I think the problem is really that many publishers who set out to make an educational game really focus on education first and gameplay second. You can kind of liken it to how in the dawn of the CD-based game uh, industry with Sega CD, 3DO, etc., game developers really tried to make everything full motion video to the detriment of the CD media, uh, the CD-based media's capabilities in general. Um, Those games are crap not because they have full motion video, but because the gameplay itself was a secondary consideration to this shiny new bauble of the technical capability of full motion video. There are plenty of Sega CD games that use full motion video in a great way to enhance in mid, mid-level mid clips or enhance the sound, things like that. I liken that to edutainment games where the focus isn't on gameplay but on the the education factor itself primarily. I, I think it probably largely has to do with economics um, and... You'll find that most of my thoughts on things go back to economics. (laughs) But I think that with game development costs ballooning, especially for high quality titles, taking out the retro indie scene, I think there's not a lot of you, you have primarily school districts are fighting for any dollar that they can get just for infrastructure and things like that and have to really go to bat for any incremental dollar that they spend. And I think that while more dollars are being spent on technology, I think things like this sort of get backburnered as uh, nice to haves, but we don't need that. And then the universe, or the schools that do have the the funds for it, just don't have enough scale to really support an entire industry and uh, the industrial backing that would need be needed to really make that game genre have much quality to it. You know, and I th- and something I also just thought of uh, is. Um, what we just got through talking about the previous and the previous story regarding digital media and physical media and how there's a there's an entrenched uh, revenue stream with used game stores, places like uh, GameStop that don't want to give up on that revenue. And, and, you know, there's always every year at the beginning of the college season, there are stories about how expensive textbooks are and how that's really an entire industry that's built upon the used textbook world. I mean, those those books should not cost $80 used, but they do because that's what people will pay for them. And that's what people have always come to expect as, as paying for them. So that, you know, there's probably a, a, a textbook lobby, I'm sure, somewhere that's fighting to keep textbooks alive, which would make any sort of potential 
swell um, uh, in the edutainment world as a replacement for textbooks. Probably that that would be just be one more hurdle that they would be up against. I'm sure. Well, and even text, even the textbook industry is going more and more toward digital versions of the textbook with some in, interactivity to them. But again, this gets back to the used market that you just alluded to, uh, and them losing out on a swath of their what they perceive to be sales they should be getting uh, to that used textbook market because it is a huge, huge business, and. Any every little bit that they can make a digital textbook not transferable, that's another sale that they'll get next semester to a student who may have purchased a used copy. So let's move on from this textbook conversation because frankly it's boring the shit out of me. And let's talk about just because they're textbooks, not not you're not boring. Just because not. I was talking. <laughs> no, I have, I feel like I have to qualify that. Sometimes I, I've been accused of my humor or my statements being. Um, dry, I guess, uh, <laughs> when really my intent is entirely for them to be offensive. So I hope that that comes across. Well uh, done. Well done. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I appreciate your candor. Good, you jackass. So <laughs> let's talk about uh, there being no such thing as a hard game. Um, so again, I mentioned earlier, I made a video about this, the Cartridge Club podcast, the, the Cartridge Bros made a video, made a, a, a podcast about this. Um, and it's just sort of serendipitous that there's an article that comes out, which I think is one of the best articles I've read on the topic about hard games versus easy games. Uh, I think primarily because it comes from the perspective of a game developer. It's called There's No Such Thing as a Hard Game parentheses, or an easy one. And this is from uh, rollingstone.com. Uh, so uh, the the article, like I said, comes from the game developer's perspective, and it it's so much more articulate than I could really uh, summarize here. But I really liked the approach in that he talked about easy versus hard not necessarily being a mark of credibility to a game or a mark of challenge or necessarily. It's, it's, it's just a sim- it's a, it's a choice that designers have to make and it's a and he says there's a quote in here which is a great quote i love it says the reality is that difficulty on any level high or low is an accessibility compromise meaning that you as a game designer are making choices uh to to present a game in a certain way and you're having to rely on the end user to be able to read your cues to understand your cues and doing so is 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 difficult for designers to do um and it's so so therefore it being difficult to do definitely makes makes it it forces it to be a choice um and the 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 other i thought very interesting thing he mentioned here which is something i will use till the day i die to talk about how hard games aren't better games uh, because I'm, i'm a fan of easy games i've talked about this before but uh, the designer in, in question here actually said that making a hard game is actually much easier to do than making a easy or normal difficulty game. You can make an obstacle difficult and, and hard to get past very easily in a game. Um, and balancing that with a player's willingness to continue and willingness to move forward is just a, it's a very difficult balance. And so I, I, I love this article so, so freaking much. So uh, do you have any thoughts on it, Scott, or is this something where I was just... I might just be married to the topic and and therefore I want to share my lovely topic wife with the world. I found it very interesting and I kind of found it interesting from a perspective of growing up I played a lot of D&D and all through college we had a group of friends that would get together and play D&D you know every week every couple of weeks and that was always a hard thing for whoever was running the game to manage was the difficulty of each campaign 
And I think this article does a good job of putting that in perspective and how it's easy to, you know, throw a player up against a million monsters or a million, uh, you know, a million impossible tasks rather than trying to walk the line between making something challenging and uh, while maintaining the, the fun and, and the accessibility to it. Mm -hmm. So for all of you out there who think uh, easy games are lame, you can shut your stupid face. <coughs> P <clears> two. <throat> P two. Oh, sorry. Man, I, I think got you had some a, caught in my throat. Yeah, there. I think got some caught in your throat. That's uh, okay. I'm glad you got it out. It seemed like it was it was fairly easy to get out, and that and, and you're alive because of it. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, it it's worked a good, out well. It's a good thing that was an well. easy task for you to do. Oh, so um, I didn't even need a cheat code. <laughs> if you had died, could we have you know, of course, choking on your the fake thing you were choking on? Um, could could we have blamed P two for that? Because he probably he feels like easy shouldn't be a thing, and uh, and you could have died if it wasn't so easy to remove that clog from your throat. So yeah, but you know the good part would have been my entire game library is transferable. <laughs> That's what we've learned, right? <laughs> it wouldn't go to P two though. Probably F not. that guy. No. Let's give it to Jeez. Eric instead. P two's even worse than even worse than Eric. I mean, I can't believe I said that. You know, God. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna need a new domain. <laughs> Okay, last story before we get to the main event, which is uh, all of our horror game stories, which I, I'm really excited about talking about. So uh, this is probably going to be a quick one because I don't have necessarily any skin in this game, but the ER ESRB says that video game loot boxes do not qualify as gambling despite there being some similarities. And I thought this was interesting because it has been a topic as of late. Um, I didn't realize it had gotten so high as for the ESRB to actually make an official statement on it. I really thought it was just a bunch of people wondering and thinking about our loot boxes gambling. But apparently the ESRB, which I'm assuming has some sort of jurisdiction in this type of decision, even though ultimately it would be a legal decision beyond probably just the, the realm of the ESRB. I, I don't really know, but um, it, it was interesting. They say they don't qualify as gambling, and they say the primary reason is because um, you always get something. Like, you're never going to come up with nothing, um, which is interesting, because if, if there's any developer out there that decides to make loot boxes where maybe sometimes you don't get anything, well, then they may just, it may be that small of a thing that gets that puts them in violation of some uh, some rule which is interesting the thing that came to my mind when reading this article was i had to go and check my halo 5 box to see if the esrb rating had a gambling button on it because anytime you put that disc in you come up with nothing <laughs> burn oh <laughs> man halo burn wow yeah that that's all i have that's all i that's all i have uh, hey. mic drop i'm i'm out <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't discredit that with a qualifier of all. That's not all you had. That is an amazing nugget that you were able to contribute, and I appreciate that. Um, so let's talk about scary video game experiences. So I was reading uh, Game Informer magazine, and that's right. I was reading a paper magazine. I, As much as I don't like GameSpot um, or GameStop, I genuinely enjoy their Game Informer publication. Um, I don't know how they're related. I don't know if one's owned by the other or if they just have some sort of distribution relationship but that's this is really the only reason i have a gamestop uh rewards card is so that i can get a a cheaper deal on my print copy of game informer but anyway they had a, a an article in uh, in issue number 294 called fright factor rounding up today's best horror games and it's you know kind of a list article like you would expect but what this game really do, did interestingly or that what this article really did interestingly was that it divided the horror genre up into um, separate collections of tropes or separate, uh, really individual tropes, and uh, to, to be honest. And 
that was an approach. I really like that. I really yeah. like the, the delineation there and seeing what they put in what bucket. I loved it. And it allowed you to realize that horror is more than just scary. Um, because there's some games in here, they have a bucket called, uh, uh, which one is Doom in? Because I know I never really thought of Doom as a horror game, but when they put a blood and gore. So they have an, a, a section called blood and gore. Which makes sense. If you have a section called Blood and Gore, of course Doom would be in there. And when you think of Blood and Gore, you think, yeah, that would naturally fit under horror. But I wouldn't have directly connected horror to Doom. So they, they did some really cool things. Let's go through each of the uh, each of the categories and then maybe touch on a game from each category that sort of moved us or, or is memorable to us. Moved our bowels right out of our yeah. pants. Uh, all right, let's do that. So their first category is jump scares. Um, this one's pretty self-explanatory, so no need to read their description here. Um, and they have listed, uh, well, I guess if we just want to talk about, I'll, I'll quickly say the three games that they have listed. I, I might as well. It'll take no time at all, other than qualifying the statement with it'll take no time at all. And we will talk about maybe one of those or a, one that's maybe not on the list, if that makes sense. So with jump scares, they listed Observer, Outlast 2, and Resident Evil 7. Yeah, I've only actually played one of these games so far, and that's Resident Evil 7. And I think Resident Evil 7 to me was my favorite Resident Evil since the very first Resident Evil. I absolutely loved it. I would also put Resident Evil 1 in mm-hmm. this jump scares bucket. Mm-hmm. To me, one of the most iconic gaming memories that I have growing up is of the very first Resident Evil, playing it uh, back in 1996 when it came out on the PlayStation. Uh, I remember getting home with it, and I had I was in high school at the time, and I went into my bedroom and turned off all the lights and spent the entire night playing it. And it was really just the first time that I really truly felt afraid in a in a video game. The iconic moment for me is when it was very early on in the game and you're walking down a, a hallway and you have the the first dog mm. in the game jumps through the window and that's your first experience with the the iconic dogs from that game and it scared the ever loving <laughs> bejesus out of me and that is just sort of that moment is what i identify the entire resident evil series with in my mind oh you're i didn't even think of that but you're absolutely right you say that and it brings back horrible memories the first time i played that game uh, I rented it. I, I was younger when I first played it. I rented it. I was probably in junior high, maybe even a little younger than that. So I, don't, I, I think you and I are about the same age. So maybe I'm 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 thinking about that incorrectly. But um, I was I hated it. I, I didn't understand what it was uh, based on the 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 cover. I, I didn't read a lot of video game magazines at that time. Didn't have a lot of video game knowledge. Uh, or didn't keep up on it necessarily, other than Nintendo Power. I was avid Nintendo Power reader, subscriber, and so this game obviously didn't really register there. Um, and I remember I rented it. We took it. We took me and my friend took it to his house, played it, uh, and I hate. I didn't get it. The tank controls. I was like, what is this? The game made it look like it was some sort of action shooting game or whatever the back cover did. Um, and I didn't get it, didn't understand it. And we tried to exchange it for a better game. <laughs> and when the, the person at the rental counter was like, so we're, why do you want it? To, is it scratch? Is it broken? And we literally said, no, it just sucks. We want a different one. And uh, <laughs> we, di- we didn't get a different one. They didn't let us exchange that. So, But I, the only game I've played on, on this list is Resident Evil 7 as well. And, and, I, and I only played the, the, in, the um, demo. And I think because I, I, I hate scare, uh, jump scare games, I, I just don't, I don't deal with them very well. So I consciously avoid them. So it's not surprising that I haven't played any of the others on this list. Yeah. And I almost, I, I struggle thinking to my Resident Evil 7 playthrough, whether I would have classified it as a jump scare. 
I tend to think of Resident Evil 7 as more of an an ambient scariness. And I don't know if that's psychological horror or, uh, you know, one of the, I don't see another one of their categories that it would really fit in. Mm-hmm. So I think I might create a, a, an eighth category here that would be more of a, an ambient spookiness category. Ooh, ambient spookiness. Okay, okay. If that's one of them, we'll have to try to fill that out with two more games. So be thinking those as we go through here. I will. I th- I've already got one of them that I bucketed into a different category. So we'll touch on that in just a moment. All right. So, so the next category is Slasher Showdown. Again, very self-descriptive. Uh, they have Dead by Daylight and Friday the 13th. Just two listed for this one. Unless I missed one. I think it is just two. Yep, just two. Dead by Daylight and Friday the 13th. I haven't played either one of those. Have you? No, I haven't. Friday the 13th, I haven't played because I think it's only, at this point, it's only multiplayer. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and I think Dead by Daylight might be also. I think, yeah, I think they're kind of the same, which is interesting because they don't throw any, I mean, those are both games that are unique in that they are multiplayer. You play as one of the, the bad guy, your friends play as the good guys, uh, as the other characters, I believe. So it's weird that they would, that coincidentally, those are the two games that they would also associate with slashers, because there are a lot of other slasher games out there. I mean, you've, you have one listed here. Yeah, when I saw the slasher showdown category, the game that instantly came to mind was probably the first um, really, I guess one of the first two horror games, and the other one probably fits in this category too, is Splatterhouse course splatterhouse for the genesis and and turbo graphics it was really an homage to sort of those you know classic slasher movies and even so much so that it had their promo when it came out on the turbo graphics 16 they distributed this short little comic book that sort of laid out the story and set up the story it was almost a prequel to the game story where you know the guy and this his girlfriend visit the the spooky mansion of dr west and the, the girlfriend disappears and the guy wakes up and he's got the terror mask, the iconic Splatterhouse mask attached to his face uh, and realizes he can't take it off until he is able to track down his girlfriend, Jennifer, and starts slaughtering demons and hacking and slashing his way through. And to me, that's just sort of one of the iconic slasher showdown category games of all time. Oh, I totally agree with you. I don't think there's any feeling or there's very few feelings in video games more satisfying than that thud when you when you hit an enemy in that game I mean there's just so much it's it feels right like it it, I don't know if it's the sound I don't know if it's just the the proximity that you are that that you could feel the weight of his swing and as the enemy goes flying into the background and like slaps up against the wall it's just I I played it recently at the uh, at the video game museum in Frisco Texas they have a whole line of consoles set up and that was one of the games that they happened to have set up that day I went and I forgot how satisfying that game is. So good. Have you played the the PlayStation Three version yet? I, no, I haven't. I haven't either. That's been that's one that I really want to dive into. I've heard a lot of good things about it. I, I've never. Uh, I don't have a PlayStation Three, and I've actually never played a PlayStation Three, if you can believe it. Um, which is crazy. That's crazy. That I, that's that's that. I, I, <laughs> I know it's bad. I need to. I need to get one. Um, I. I I don't know. I just uh, maybe it's just because there's so many games on PlayStation Four that I don't feel the need. But um, yeah, I feel bad being a video game aholic as I am. I just feel feel bad about that. Yeah, it's it's got such a great library, and frankly, right now is a great time to be picking stuff up for it too, because it's always on you know dirt cheap sales at GameStop. You can get you know buy two get one free that kind of thing. Um, I've been really steadily increasing my PlayStation Three collection just because of that, and coming across some some hidden gems so 
Nice. So the story-driven spooks is our next list here. Um, you know, spooky games that are more about the story than they are about anything else. The games they have on the list, Until Dawn, which to me that seems a little bit too on the nose for story-driven. I mean, that's to me that's, I don't know, I guess it's scary. Um, the Vanishing of Ethan Carter and What Remains of Edith Finch. Those last two games I've never played but have really, really wanted to. Until Dawn has been on my, oh, I'm going to play that next after I get done playing, you know, fill in the blank, whatever I'm playing now. <laughs> and then inevitably I get done with that game and I go and I grab Until Dawn after the sh- off the shelf and I look at it and end up just thinking, yeah, I'll play that later and go on to the next game. And I don't know why. I, I'm not sure why I just can't get excited for it other than in the nebulous i'm going to play that next phase it's it's hard to get excited about it i've I played it once and i played it with a group of friends and i've i've heard everywhere that that's kind of how you have to play it you have to play with a group of people around you because it's fun to sort of argue over which choices you should make and that sort of thing um, i honestly think that playing it alone and and hopefully this won't be a nail in the coffin for that game for you but i've heard i i feel like playing it alone will be very difficult to do so Hmm, take that for what it's worth so i added to this list a wonderful little hidden gem called colot um which came out uh, it wasn't released in the u.s but you know play ps4 being uh region free thank god for that uh it's it's an european european release i believe um yep it's so good oh my god it's a game that uh just nails this the story driven spook factor it's it's a game that there were times during the game that i felt like it was a terrible game <laughs> as weird as that sounds but ultimately it was it's it was one of the highlights of of i played it last year um and it was absolutely one of the highlights of that year i love 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 that game tell me a little bit about the story this is one that i imported yeah and got it a couple of months ago and haven't dived into it yet so i'm i'm very interested in it yeah it's sort of a uh, it doesn't tell you much it's a, it's one of those games where you learn about the story by picking up fragments of things and and you find things around but your your entire environment is essentially you at base camp on a snowy mountain um and it's a first person perspective you're kind of walking around and there's no guidance whatsoever in this game. It doesn't tell you where to go, what to do. It's all based on uh, uh, affordance and, and seeing things sort of assuming that, hey, this lighted tower is probably where I need to go, so let me travel down this direction. Um, and you, uh, you, you start to see images, uh, these sort of ethereal red images. You'll see red footprints in the snow, that sort of thing, which kind of alludes to the spookiness going on and ultimately you have to just explore this map and collect these um uh it's collecting something i can't remember what it i think maybe it's some some form of map or paper or something like that um to sort of solve the the the, solve the craziness of what's going on and i've never played a game before that gives you so little but you still are able to figure it out without, I think I had to look online maybe once or twice to kind of figure what's going out. It has the look, um, if I didn't know better, I would have sworn the developers of Dear Esther created this game. Um, There are elements in Dear Esther uh, where I I feel like it's ripped. I feel Colot is directly ripped from that game. So if you imagine just the wonderful visual appeal of of Dear Esther, especially um, if you'll remember sort of in the cave settings, there were some very 
very visually interesting cave scenes in Dear Esther that those imagine if those were in a horror game and a creepy game with snow and everything. And it's just a wonderful experience and not terribly long either. Uh, Less than 10 hours. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, but I don't know. I can't say enough good things about that game. Definitely a hidden gem. One of the, I guess there were two things that really drew me to import it, not knowing much about it. One was that it was a pseudo sort of survival horror type game. I just love the genre. And two was that the cover says that it's narrated by Sean Bean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love me some Sean Bean. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a ton of narration, unfortunately, so you probably won't, you know, get get that much uh, benefit out of it from that perspective. But um, still, very much worth. It. If you ever get around to playing it, let me know how you feel. So, the, well, this may have to replace Until Dawn <laughs> as my. I'm going to play that next game. <laughs> I would I would vote for that. <laughs> what do you have to add to this story driven spooks list? So this the game that I have to add to the story driven spooks list is actually the game that I was thinking about in my category that I made up earlier here and that is alan wake it's not really a horror game it's not gory it doesn't have a a, a, it's not scary in the traditional sense it doesn't have a bunch of jump jump scares or uh, anything like that it's just really cool creepy atmosphere so it's uh, i lump it into that atmospheric horror genre For, for anybody who hasn't played it it's almost like a Twin Peaks-style game. It takes place in a a little mountain town called Bright Falls. That's our second Twin Peaks reference (laughs) uh, of this podcast, uh, fittingly enough with our our Halloween theme. Uh, But when I moved to Denver, I lived in Denver for three years, and I was always taken back to this game, uh, Alan Wake. Uh, I had played it before moving out there, but I was always returned to Alan Wake whenever I was driving through the mountains and would come across, you know, one of these little mountain towns, um, just they're littered all over, you know, throughout Western Colorado and, and the Rockies. And every one of them, I, th- I would always just be taken back to, oh, what, what terrible secret does this community have? <laughs> I've heard wonderful things about that game. I definitely need to check that out. Um, so, uh, next on the list, we have one, two, three, four, five, six more lists left here. So hide and seek is the next one. Uh, and this includes, uh, per the game informer article, alien isolation perception and slender the arrival. Once again, a collection of games that I have not played any of those. I played alien isolation and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of those games that it was early on in the PlayStation fours, uh, lifespan. And I was looking for stuff to play. And I think it was the first black Friday after it had come out. And I think I got it for like $10 or something at, at Best Buy and didn't expect much of anything out of it. I don't think it had gotten great reviews and that's just off the top of my head. I don't recall if that's correct, but that's my recollection. And it really does play like uh, the atmosphere is the same as sort of that first Aliens movie where it's just creepy and you're creeping around the the spaceship not knowing kind of what's around every corner. Uh, and I, I just thought it did a really good job of capturing the ambiance of the Alien movie. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I avoid hide-and-seek games too because I... I don't like stealth. 
Uh, I don't I don't mm. have patience for stealth games and also jump scares. So which we already covered. So yeah, I'm a little bit of a weenie. I love stealth games. Any game where you can pick a class, I'm always a rogue, and I always love you know sneaking around, and that tends to be why I end up spending you know twice as long beating games <laughs> as it normally takes because I'm always sneaking around exploring every different crevasse and and nook and cranny i wish i was as respectable as you i can't do it don't have the patience all right psychological horror is our next list uh where they list uh darkest dungeon uh which is a game i've been wanting to play for a while amnesia the dark descent soma and the evil within and the evil within 2 was just released today as of this recording so i imagine that that would probably also be on this list i don't know seems to make sense yeah yeah evil within is one that is also on my Oh, yeah, I got to play that one of these days lists. Mm-hmm. Just looks like a really, really cool game. Yeah. Did you add have any to add to this list? I did. It's sort of a sad story putting this title on the list, and that's uh, PT, the legendary Silent Hills playable teaser that appeared for just a very short time on PlayStation 4 uh, store for download. And, of course, I didn't hear about it until well after it was gone because I don't pay attention to downloads. So this is something I've never played, and it makes me sad because I've you know watched videos on it and read a ton about it, and it just looks creepy as hell and looks like something that would be really up my alley. Obviously, it was directed and written by uh, Hideo Kojima, obviously of Konami and Metal Gear fame, and uh, Guillermo del Toro. So uh, just a sort of pairing of uh, legends in their respective uh in their respective fields and sadly the game got canceled by konami and the teaser got pulled and has never seen the light of day again yeah well we've got death stranding to look forward to at some point so there's there's hopefully something uh something from those two brilliant minds that will still see the light of day a little spiritual successor yeah i'd like to think so uh next on the list blood and gore we mentioned this earlier this has dead rising 4 doom and let it die i've only played doom but i feel like that's all i need to play because that game is phenomenal oh it's amazing doom was the first game that i bought when i bought my playstation one on launch day it was the launch title that i was most excited about Uh, i bought that and ridge racer I had played a ton of Doom on the PC, and the playing it on a console for the first time was an absolute blast. Mm-hmm. And I played the game for what felt like months on end. <laughs> Just one of the really cool experiences, and one of the games that really launched the, the first-person shooter genre mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, and you have played, I, I assume, the remake, right? Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. Good, yep. good, yeah. Absolutely. And actually, I would put, I would, not only would I put the, the remake in this category, but also Doom 3. Doom 3 on PC, uh, which is where I played it. I haven't played the BFG edition on PlayStation 3 yet, but Doom 3, I found to just have a really great uh, ambiance and really great horror storyline to it. I played that, uh, I played that the PC version this, you know, probably 10 years ago or whenever it was that it came out. Definitely recommended. Nice. Three more lists here. Next one is Classic Frights, uh, which this one, the article specifically mentions that these are 
uh, games that were frightful, that were scary in the past, and sort of have been updated. So they they won't. Uh, this shouldn't surprise you. But the two games on the list: The Last of Us Remastered and Resident Evil HD Remaster. Which I never really thought of The Last of Us as even being anywhere near or close to the horror genre. I'm hoping it's not. No, I would saddled agree. in here. Yeah, I'm hoping it's not just because it has zombies and that's it, or has zombie-like creatures and that's it. But you know, I. I guess it's scary to some degree, but I, I, I don't know. It seems weird that it's in this list. Yeah, I, to me, it's more of a drama. You know, it, it's more of a, a game that kind of tugs at your heartstrings, and the the creepiness factor is really just the setting. It doesn't it because it's zombies and it's uh, a sur- it really is a survival game. Yeah, yeah, I agree. With that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's misclassed here, mis miscategorized mm-hmm. here as a a classic frights title i agree uh so the next on the list uh the next list is creepy platformers now this is my effing jam so the two games they have listed on this are inside and little nightmares um, i would absolutely add the game limbo to this uh, in fact i think limbo was a little bit creepier than inside but they were both super creepy and great little nightmares is one of my favorite games of this year easily um, I think it came out this year. Uh, I think it did. Um, so anyway, I, this is my genre. I wish I could. I wish I could bloat this list out and have 15 more games on it. But I honestly can't think of that many games that would fit into the creepy platformer genre. I wish there were more. Um, and you, sir, should get on the inside and limbo train now that there is that physical release of those two games. So, so you have no excuses now. No, I and I have the the physical release. Uh, so it's just a matter of fi- actually finishing Yeast 8 and uh, freeing up some of the you know, hours of my life here. <laughs> well, luckily they are, they're, they're quick little, uh, fairly short little nuggets of tastiness, including in Little Nightmares as well, which I would absolutely recommend. As well. I also have that one, so I really need to get on the, uh, the Caleb J. Ross uh, recommendation <laughs> train here and knock these out. All right, and so uh, this last category is one that maybe you could have recommendations for me because I am not really one for co-op games, don't really care for them. Um, so, uh, but although I guess, uh, so the, the category is killer co-op, uh, and the first game on there, Dying Light, interestingly enough, is a game that I actually really, really loved, though I never played the, uh, the, the co-op version of the game, never played the co-op, it was only the, the single player campaign. The other games on the list, Killing Floor 2, and they list the entire Left for Dead series, which I think is cheating, but I'll let it pass. Yeah, I mean, to me, this falls into the, well, it's got zombies in it, so let's throw it into the, the category. Um... I guess the to me this category is a little bit mistitled because these games they're sort of just multiplayer games um, and so less less so with the co-op and that's why the game that I added to the category is more in that just killer multiplayer uh, spookiness genre and that's uh, the original Aliens versus Predators for PC uh, back in 1999 by Rebellion which followed shortly on the heels of the the Atari Jaguar game um, you know a few years prior to that and it was a multiplayer first person shooter where one player would play as a predator. Uh, I can't remember if one or multiple players played as aliens, and then uh, the bulk of players played as marines. And so the aliens, obviously, you've got the like the speed and the climbing ability. The predators have the cloaking capabilities, and then the marines just have out and out firepower. Um, so each different class of character has a different play style and and vastly different play style at that. And it was really one of the very first multiplayer FPS titles to really embrace multiple class 
sources in a meaningful sort of way. I mean, back then you sort of had you had Quake and you had Tribes and you had um, you know, I can't remember if Counter Strike was even out yet at that point. I think it probably was, but it was mostly you know, a lot of characters that just did the same thing and differentiated themselves based on weaponry. And this one, it just combined a spooky atmosphere. I get back to that atmosphere all the time because I think that's what really draws me into these types of games and just combines a, it was a very dark game. So you never really knew what was coming out of any corner or what was dropping out. If, a, if an alien was going to drop out of a pipe above you or anything like that. Uh, just a, probably one of my favorite classic PC titles. It sounds wonderful. It sounds wonderful. Before I call it quits, Scott, anything else that, uh, that I forgot. No, I don't think so. I mean, I getting into my favorite time of the season here. So yeah. I'm glad we got a chance to do a, a Halloween themed episode. I know we have an episode coming out the day before Halloween, but we thought it'd be best to get this out there so that people could get into the Halloween mood and get some Halloween gameplay, some spooky gameplay as, uh, as we come toward the end of October. Yes. And please everyone out there listening, um, you know, send us uh, send us your recommendations for the best Halloween scary game. Give us any ex- uh, specific instances from your gaming life where you uh, were particularly frightened. Uh, we'd love to hear about that. You can reach us at MU Podcast. Is that our Twitter? That's our Twitter, right? It's uh, MOU Podcast. MOU Podcast. I am dumb. Also at VG Collectaholic, if you want to get a hold of Scott directly uh, at Twitter, and then myself, Caleb J. Ross, at Twitter, the letter J, uh, all one word. So you can reach us there. You can also find us at mastersofunlocking.com. You can find us on Facebook if you search for that very sim- same phrase. Uh, you can find us all over the place. And um, we, we, we really genuinely, genuinely appreciate you listening to this podcast. It's something that uh, Scott and I really, really enjoy doing. Um, and this episode, I think think it's been especially fun and I don't know if it's because we were able to talk about Halloween and all that kind of stuff or I don't know it just felt like a really fun good episode so I'm hoping that translated to you listeners uh definitely give us a follow give us a like wherever you find this subscribe if you're not subscribed tell your friends about it that would be super helpful if you're listening to us myself ramble on uh, thank yous at the end of the podcast then obviously you must have enjoyed it to some degree so uh before we call it quits um Anything else that uh, that you want to uh, promote or talk about or anything, Scott, that maybe I missed? I think I got your Twitter there. I got our website, Facebook, all that kind of good stuff. Anything else from you? just want to touch on the, the stories uh, from our listeners and the recommendations for the games. Uh, let us know. Hit us up. And, and maybe on our next episode right before on Halloween Eve, we'll read off some of the, the best uh, user recommendations. The user recommendations are coming from inside the house. Oh, my God. <laughs> Run upstairs! <laughs> <laughs>